Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. I'm going to, in just a few minutes, get into this bizarre new ruling about by the Senate parliamentarian basically crippling the Democrats in the Senate. So we'll get into that in just a minute. But my main rant for the day is uh, the piece that I posted at HartmanReport.com, the, the grand dragon of today's Ku Klux Caucus. Uh, that would be Donald Trump. But the point is that the Democratic Party needs to start dealing with the Republican Party not as a legitimate political party. This is the problem. I mean, you see like, you know, Cinema and Mansion hanging out with Republicans going, oh, yeah, we're all cool here. No, I'm sorry. The Republican Party is no longer a real conventional political party. I mean, there's I, a week or two ago shared with you this extraordinary study out of Europe comparing the Republican Party with a whole variety, with several hundred, I think it was over 300 different political parties across Europe. And, you know, because most European countries have parliamentary systems and proportional representation in parliament, they have multiple parties, unlike the United States, where we basically have two parties. So they looked at, you know, several hundred political parties and compared them to the Republican Party. And they, the conclusion they came to was that the Republican Party was closest to Viktor Orban's Fidesz, which is the, the right-wing fascist party that has taken over Hungary, shut down the free press, imprisoned people like me, imprisoned the opposition, particularly its people in the media. And this is, by the way, now starting to infect Poland seriously as well. So, you know, basically they just came out and said the Republican Party is not a legitimate political party. Well, okay, if it's not a legitimate political party, what is it? Donald Trump dumped his blog. I mean, that was like the big news story yesterday afternoon, right? Trump kills his blog because it only had 150,000 followers, which, you know, is a statement of the power of the algorithms on Twitter and Facebook to amplify anything outrageous. I mean, that's, you know, they make their money on engagement. Outrage drives engagement. It's the exact same game that they play over on Fox News. Hey, let's get all upset about uh, Mr. Potato Head today, right? Phony outrage. But anyhow, Trump abandoned his blog because, you know, there's really only one message from Donald Trump that his base cares about. These, you know, Trump wasn't offering deep thoughts on the economy or insights into the nation's infrastructure or even commentary on the Middle East. He wasn't, uh, I mean, he, he, he wasn't like Richard Nixon, you know, a, a foreign policy expert. He wasn't like Ronald Reagan, uh, you know, a, a Republican who completely believed supply side economics and trickle down economics. He wasn't like George W. Bush, who passionately told us how important it was that we attack uh, the country that has the second largest supply of oil on earth, Iraq, and then turn that oil over to Dick Cheney's company, or at least a chunk of it, and the revenues from it. You know, basically the only thing Donald Trump has to offer his followers is racism. It's just that simple. And that's not unique in our history. I mean, you know, back in 1921, when Republicans took the White House with the election of Warren Harding, and by the way, this is not in the 1920s. This was not entirely partisan. 
Uh, this was in, in part in response to Woodrow Wilson showing birth of a nation. But basically, you had 12 years of Republican rule that paralleled a massive rise in power and influence by the Ku Klux Klan. And in fact, on my blog today, or my post today, or whatever you call it over at HarvardReport.com, um, I posted a picture of 150,000 cheering Americans, you know, applauding in 1926, 30,000 Klan members marching down Pennsylvania Avenue, or whatever the avenue is, marching down to the Capitol. That's, you know, that's where we were at in the 1920s when Republicans were running the White House. It, it, it kind of fell off, you know, in the 1960s, Klan membership uh, after the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act and the assassination of, our, of, of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King and things like that. Basically, it became embarrassing to wear Klan regalia. You know, I mean, you still had a few diehards like David Duke, but basically... And Steve Scalise, you know, the number two Republican in the House of Representatives, Republican from Louisiana, who can't, who, you know, who said, I am David Duke without the baggage. So, I mean, it is still around, <laughs> but they don't call themselves the Klan anymore. They call themselves the Republican Party. Where did all those Klan members go? They became Republicans. Why? Because Richard Nixon on the advice of his consultancy, there was these three guys who started this, this political consulting company back in the late 60s that worked for Richard Nixon. They were Lee Atwater, Paul Manafort, and Roger Stone. Their company was something like Atwater, Manafort, Stone, or Associates, or you know, some variation on that. And they basically advised Richard Nixon to start calling out to the white racist so-called silent majority with his Southern strategy. This is what they invented. So, you know, bottom line, and there, there was a, an Axios Ipsos poll that just showed this the other day that, you know, like, here it is, that 48% of Republicans disagree, say America's not racist, and only 4% of Democrats say that. I mean, it, this is 87% of white Democrats believe America needs to continue working to give black Americans equal rights. Only 19% of white Republicans agree. I mean, this is why Republicans have introduced legislation into 47 states to block voting by non-white people. Today's GOP is the Klan reinvented. They don't care about foreign policy. They don't give a rat's ass about the federal budget or what tax rates corporations pay. They don't care about Keynesian economics or trickle-down economics. All they care about is that black people and other racial and gender minorities, along with their white women, are kept under their thumbs. This is it. It's very straightforward. History is literally repeating itself. It's why the Republican legislatures all across the country are so hysterical about uh, the racial history of America being taught in our schools. Uh, well, of course, the Klan would be hysterical about it. it. It reflects poorly on them. It's why you've got open Nazis organizing you know, MAGA events on Facebook. The Democratic Party is in denial. We have had this evidence since 1968 that the Republican Party was reinventing itself as the Klan or that the Klan was reinventing itself as the GOP at the behest of Richard Nixon. And they've been going on this path all along. Even these white armed white militias, they're just the old Knight Riders. Democrats need to recognize this. They need to get out of denial and start treating the Republican Party the way that they would treat the Klan. Because that's what it is. This is the Tom Hartman Program. I want to get into uh, what the Senate parliamentarian is up to. It's uh, nasty, nasty stuff. watching us on Free Speech TV in Chicago. Hey, Ed, what's up? Hey, Tom, I just got a question for you, and I'll, I'll hang up and let you uh, answer it. But I'm just wondering, what do we do with Manchin and Cinema if they just say, the heck with you Democrats, we're flipping the Republican side? Yeah. How, 
Because then we're... You know, I tweeted this last night. I, I, I was watching a segment on Chris Hayes' show, uh, you know, about this and about, you know, Kristen Sinema standing there with John Cornyn, the Republican from Texas right, senator. Right. And she was going, uh, oh, you know, the filibuster was just passed so that uh, it would force people to actually uh, collaborate and, and cooperate and, and, and come up with, you know, good solutions. I mean, she was just, she's either insanely ignorant of the history of the United States, which is, it should be a crime for a United States senator, or she was lying through her teeth. I think that, uh, you know, now that we know that Joe Manchin was, you know, a, an ALEC alumni, um, and, and here's Kirsten Cinema hanging out with the Republicans, I'm wondering how much, you know, Coke money and other right-wing billionaire money is flowing into the coffers of these two Democrats. I'm guessing it's substantial, but I mean, it's just a guess. I, so I think you're, no, I, I think you're right, but so, but, but to, to, to your question, Ed, if I could just, if, let me just finish this thought. So I tweeted last night, it's, you know, no more Mr. Nice Guy, basically. It's time to, we've tried the carrot, now it's time to do the stick, and we need to start pulling the committee assignments from any Democratic senator who won't vote to end the filibuster. Uh, somebody responded to me saying, well, won't that cause Manchin and Cinema to become Republicans? And then you've got the Jim Jeffords pro problem from 2001. And right. and uh, and I replied to him saying, you know, you make a good point, and I don't have an easy answer to that. I mean, maybe maybe it's like you scale it back. Joe Manchin is the chairman of one of the four committees that he's on. Maybe you just uh, you know reduce his status a little. Uh, but God only knows what the Republicans would offer them, or are offering them right now, if either one or both of them will flip parties. And uh, oh, I know it's. It, uh... <laughs> That's a big concern because then we're, then we're really. I mean, then we're really screwed. I, I just, it, I mean, it's a quandary. I was, <laughs> I was hoping you were going to have some. I don't have an easy answer, answer for this one, Ed. I, you know, I yeah, what yeah. I what I'm I, uh, seeing is two politicians who are apparently in the process, active process of being corrupted by big Republican money. That's what it that's looks like my to me. That's my impression, and my you know my thing is to get on the phone and call these two. But you have to be extremely polite because if you're not, they'll just say, "Well, you know, screw you guys. I'm going to I'm going to become become a Republican, and then and then we don't have any power in the Senate yeah. anymore." Yeah. Oh, yeah, God. and 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 what's incredible is that the Democrats in the Senate represent 41 million more Americans than the Republicans in the Senate do. And yet, still, you've got Democrats saying, well, you know, it's, uh, we're not quite a majority, and so we really shouldn't be, you know, quack, quack, quack. It's just, it's, yeah. it is a problem, okay. well, like, shall we say. Uh, yeah, like it I said, I, I thought, I was hoping there was an answer out there that I just wasn't grasping. Yeah, yeah. And I, I just don't see one for this, for, for, for Cinema in the Mansion. I just don't see... I think you got to walk in eggshells, and that's... Yeah. It's just, it's just I, you know, I totally get it, Ed, and I can't disagree with you. But Chuck Schumer has got to have the toughest job in D.C. right now. Ed, thanks a lot for the call. So, back in 2001, there was a period of time in 2001 when the Republicans controlled the Senate. And then Jim Jeffords abandoned the Republican Party and the control of the Senate flipped to the Democrats and Trent Lott basically ran the Senate after that. But it started out with the Republicans in charge of the Senate. And the Republicans wanted to pass multiple pieces of legislation using reconciliation. Reconciliation is that little rule that says if it has to do with taxes and spending and it affects the budget, then you can't filibuster it. And in fact, uh, as David uh, Rosenbaum in, on May 7th, 2001, wrote in the New York Times, Republican leaders decided last week to dismiss the Senate's parliamentarian, Robert B. Dove, because of their frustration over his recent rulings on tax and budget matters, a top leadership staff assistant said today. One of Mr. Dove's recent rulings was that only one tax bill could be, in other words, only one piece of legislation through reconciliation, could be considered this year under special budget rules that prevent filibusters. That was 2001. The Republicans were in charge. They wanted to pass multiple pieces of legislation using reconciliation. The Senate parliamentarian said, you can't do that. 
and they fired him. So what's going on now? Well, it turns out that the uh, Senate parliamentarian, the current one, Elizabeth McDonough, who is ostensibly nonpartisan. She's supposed to be a person who is not a creature of politics. She's just a, you know, a, 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 a Senate rules wonk. She had told Schumer a few months ago, you know, if you want to amend or add to, I, I, I don't recall, I'm not sure I ever even knew the exact language that she used when she talked to Schumer, but uh, essentially amend or add to a previous reconciliation bill with a later reconciliation bill, you could do that. In other words, you pass the American Rescue Act, the American Rescue Plan. The American Rescue Plan made it, uh, you know, basically put America back to work. I mean, we're, see we're seeing this all over the place. You passed the American Rescue Plan by reconciliation. Not a single Republican voted for it. None. There's a bunch of them out there bragging about it, but none of them voted for it. And what McDonough told Schumer back a few months ago was, and if you want to add to that, you can do that. Well, yesterday, she said, no, I've changed my mind. You can't do that if you're doing it to get around a filibuster. Now, I, I can tell you with absolute certainty that there is nothing in the Senate rules that says that you can't pass something via reconciliation just to get around a filibuster. In fact, the whole point of reconciliation is to get around a filibuster. So she's just pulling this out of, you know, her left ear. So what, you know, what, what are the Democrats going to do? What's Schumer going to do? Is he going to have the, the courage that Trent Lott had in 2001, if you want to use that word to describe Trent Lott? Is he going to stand up to her and say, you know, that's your opinion. You're fired. We're going to hire a new parliamentarian who will work with us rather than you, who was the parliamentarian during the Trump administration. Now, you know, she was also the parliamentarian during uh, the tail end of the, maybe the entire Obama administration. I'm not sure exactly when she came in, but, it, you know, it was about a decade ago. Um, but I guarantee you, if, if Mitch McConnell was the, was the Senate Majority Leader right now, and Elizabeth McDonough was uh, the Senate Parliamentarian, was blocking him, he would fire her. He's no dummy. I mean, like I said, it's, there's, a, there's a precedent for it. 2001, this is exactly what Trent Lott did. And frankly, I think it's what needs to be done again. I am, I am very concerned that this is uh, essentially a, a democracy-destroying destroying move. And, and here's why. If Joe Biden and the Democrats can pass a couple of good-sized pieces of legislation that put America back on track and prove to the American people that government can work for them. In other words, blow up Ronald Reagan's lie that government is not the, the, the solution to your problems, government is the cause of your problems. That has, for 40 years, been basically, you know, what everybody, you know, what everybody in the Republican Party believes and a lot of Americans believe. If Biden can prove that's wrong, then there's a very good chance that, you know, Democrats will prevail in the 2022 and 2024 elections and we can start reversing the, this, this fascist move, this authoritarian move, this oligarchic move that has been being pushed by Republicans since 1980, but really came to full flower with the Trump administration. And if Biden fails to do that, if the Senate can't pass these pieces of legislation, People are just going to throw their hands up and say, okay, screw it. Let's try the Republicans again. Maybe they can do something. Just like they did in 2016. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. This is not healthy. This is not healthy for democracy. We'll be back. Johan in Los Angeles. Hey, Johan, what's up? I'm really baffled and kind of shocked that the 11 senators didn't vote right. for it. The 11 senators didn't vote, yeah. 
nine Republicans and two Democrats. Right. And this, what it looks like is they're just doing the lip service to us after. Oh, I think so. To, uh, I think the nine, yeah, like the nine Republicans, one of them was on a plane back down south and who knows what the others were up to. They knew that they didn't, that the Democrats did not have 60 votes. The worst thing is the two Democrats didn't vote. That's even worse because Democrats are like shooting themselves into the foot. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, it could have been 47. Like governor situation. Yeah, one of them like, was cinema. Do you know who the other one was? I don't off the top of my head. I'm sorry. It's in Washington and Arizona. So Washington State? Yep. So that would have been, was it uh, Patty Murray or, or, uh, yep, yep. or Maria Cantwell? Well, I mean, there, there may have been a reason. You know, people have family emergencies, people have travel schedules, people have commitments. It was a vote that was going to lose anyway. But, but uh, like, um, yeah. Yeah, I get I And get, then, like, I get governors even, yeah, like Newsom, uh, Whitmer, Cuomo, they're all in trouble. And, like, uh, Democratic Party is in trouble right now for next year's midterm election. I'm not sure Gavin Newsom is in that much trouble. Cuomo... Because he got uh, caught last year for... You know, breaking COVID restrictions. Yeah, but you know, that yeah. that was you know that was a tempest in a teapot. That was a Fox News hysteria. I'm I'm not real worried about Gavin Newsom. Jack in Putney, Vermont. Hey, Jack, what's up? Hey, Tom. Uh, it's been several years, probably four, five, six years, that I heard this. It was on a TV show. Uh, I don't believe it was yours, but a friend of Rockefeller, John Rockefeller, who used to get together with him a lot and sit and have drinks and whatever he said. And we used to talk politics and talk the state of the country, the state of the union. And Rockefeller made a statement to him that we can never let the common man, he is not capable of having great influence or running the country. Right. And the the guy said he was so shocked by it that he never spoke to Rockefeller again. Really? But I think of that statement, and that's what the hell they're doing. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> and it's something new, by the way. But John Adams said, said similar things back in the day when he was president. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was, I just like, whoa, you got to be kidding me, you know? Yeah. And um, so... I just thought it'd be worth something, uh, you know, the the listeners to hear. And there might be many people that heard it also that are listening to the show right now. But it was it was just such a yeah. blatant statement of. Uh, For some reason, when people become rich. fabulously rich, Jack, they suddenly become cynical and also convinced that they are the only ones who have any kind of intelligence. You know, like, it, like yeah. It's, it's and then nuts. they convince, then actually they convince a lot of the regular people. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Jack, thanks for the call. We'll be right back. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It's Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from The Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight. 
This is toward the very end, and it's a chapter titled Transforming Culture Through Politics. Many think it's just to fund tax cuts and subsidies for the rich, that the multimillionaire CEOs who've taken over almost all senior posts in government are just pigs at the trough. And this is a spectacular but ordinary form of self-serving corruption. It all seems so plausible, and there's even a grain of truth to it. But juicy deals for right-wing government insiders and their friends are just a byproduct of the real and deeper war against democracy. The neoconservatives are perfectly happy for us to think that they're just opportunists skirting the edges of legality and morality. But this is far more dangerous than simple government corruption. Indeed, the neoconservatives claim to be anti-government. As a leading spokesman for the neocon agenda, Grover Norquist told National Public Radio's Mara Liason in a May 25th, 2001 morning edition interview, quote, I don't want to abolish government. I simply want to reduce it to the size where I can drag it into the bathroom and drown it in the bathtub, end quote. Without a larger view, the issues of domestic spending, oil, neoconservative power plays in both major parties, the loss of liberties, anti-government rhetoric, and war in the Middle East all seem like separate and unconnected events. They're not. The new conservatives who've seized the Republican Party and who, through the Democratic Leadership Council, are nipping at the heels of the Democratic Party are not our parents' conservatives. Historic conservatives like Barry Goldwater, Harry Truman, and Dwight Eisenhower would be appalled, although their philosophical roots go back to Alexander Hamilton, who openly argued during the Constitutional Convention that royalty was the best form of government. The neocons have always been kept to the fringe. Indeed, the Reagan-Bush revolution flew in the face of traditional conservative ideals. As John Stockwell notes in his book, The Praetorian Guard, The U.S. Role in the New World Order, Reagan-Bush were proud of their contempt for their concerns of environmentalists, with Reagan once saying, if you've seen one redwood, you've seen them all. Their Department of the Interior under James Watt sold off minerals and forests to campaign contributors at fire sale prices, and their EPA, in many cases, moved from prosecuting corporate polluters to legitimizing and protecting them under the guise of regulation. Although James Madison wrote in 1792 that an important role of government was to promote a strong middle class, quote, by the silent operation of the laws, which, without violating the rights of property, reduce extreme wealth toward a state of mediocrity and raise extreme indigence toward a state of comfort, end of quote from James Madison. That was not a sentiment shared by those in the Reagan-Bush revolution. Instead, Reagan raised taxes on the middle class and working people while cutting taxes by more than 60% for the most wealthy in America. At the same time, he bragged that he'd eliminated more than 1,000 programs for poor people and even proposed that poor school children should be content with ketchup as their daily vegetable. At the same time, the Reagan-Bush administration and later the George W. Bush administration worked hard to roll back the very individual liberties that America's founders had fought and died for. Dwight Eisenhower left office warning Americans about the dangers of the concentration of power resulting from corporations getting into bed with the military. But the Reagan-Bush and W. Bush administrations openly embraced these corporate powers, inviting them into the halls of governance and hungrily sucking at the teat of their campaign contributions. In the past, those promoting what is now called the new conservative agenda went by different names. The founders of America knew that for 6,000 years, civilized human beings had been ruled by one of three groups, kings, theocrats, or feudal lords. Kings held power by virtue of the threat of violence and continual warfare. Theocrats and popes held power by the people's fear of a god or gods, and feudal lords by wealth and the power that comes from throwing average people into poverty. The new idea of our founders in 1776 was to throw off all three of these historic tyrannies, and replace them with a fourth way, the people being ruled by themselves, a government that derived its legitimacy and continuing existence solely from the approval of its citizens. Government of, by, and for we the people, they called it, a constitutional Republican democracy. What we are seeing now in the conservative agenda is nothing less than an attempt to overthrow Republican democracy and replace it with a worldwide feudal state. The last time this happened, the feudalists took over a monarchy in then North America. In December 1600, Queen Elizabeth I chartered the East India Company, ultimately leading to a corporate takeover of the Americas for the colonists that ended with the Boston Tea Party, and three years later, the American Revolution. The corporate state partnership of the East India Company in the UK went on to then to conquer India, 
but eventually disintegrated as the British Empire faded and the British government, along with most of Western Europe, embraced somewhat more Jeffersonian forms of democracy. Conservatism raised its head again in the 20th century, revived by Franco, Hitler, and Mussolini. The Italian dictator even used the word corporatism to describe it and then later renamed it as fascism, a word defined by the American Heritage Dictionary as, quote, a system of government that exercises a dictatorship of the extreme right, typically through the merging of state and business leadership together with belligerent nationalism. The book is The Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight. Welcome back. Tom Harmon here with you and uh, George in Riverside County, California. Hey, George, what's on your mind? I just wanted to call because I have a memory from the 1968 Republican Convention. My mom was a delegate. 191960? 60? 68. Oh, 68. Okay. And my mom was in Miami mm. and we went to the hotel to check in and there was an announcement that came over the loudspeakers that said that they were not seating any black delegates from any states. My mom immediately said, we're leaving. Oh. We got, we went and we left and the city of Miami started rioting. When we were leaving, we saw the troops coming into the city. So the thing that you're saying that this this craziness that the Republicans have going on, it goes all the way back to there. Right. And I tell people this story because I lived through it, you know, wow. and it's something that they don't like to talk about because when I went to the convention with my mother, my mother was a Rockefeller delegate. Mm -hmm. And from what we understood at the time, it was supposed to be Reagan versus Rockefeller. Nixon wasn't even in the mix. Mm -hmm. He came up as a dark horse you know, and brokered his way through the convention. But the bottom line is, is that people don't know the history. Yeah. If they knew the history, this was a reaction to the 1964 Democratic Convention in Atlantic City, where they ran the Mississippi Dele Freedom Caucus, ran out the Mississippi delegation. And that's where the change came, because the Dixiecrats had joined the Republican Party. And by right. doing that, that's what ended up happening. They brought these other practices. I can't say that they happened at the other conventions because I wasn't there. But the first convention that I ever went to was with my mom. And I, this is the memory that I have from it. The 1968 Republican convention, they announced they were not seating any black delegates. Any black, any black delegates from any state. Wow. Wow. So George, thank you not, for that. Yeah. Can, if you can find a, you know, any kind of link anywhere on the internet that might back that up and tweet it at me, I'd really appreciate it. I've been looking for it for years. There was somebody from MSNBC, they did the background on it, but they didn't mention it. Mm -hmm. And I've been looking for somebody else to mention it because I was there. Yeah. That's why I can tell you about it. Oh, but I believe you. I haven't seen it. Yeah. I haven't seen it in the history books. Because I would love to have documentation of that. It would make a great, the, the, a great basis for a great rant. George, thank you for the call. And if you find anything, you know, track me down. Okay? I will Let get back to you, Tom. Okay. Thanks a lot, George. Certainly good, will. Good talking mm -hmm. with you. Welcome back, Tom Harbin here with you and uh, picking up your phone calls. Mike in Chicago. Hey, Mike, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, I got a quick question and maybe a comment. If Donald Trump is such a billionaire, how come he doesn't have houses all over the world and the country? Uh, think about that. Just because you're rich doesn't mean that you spend your money like that. And, uh, I and, think and he does have properties around the world. Uh, you know, David K. Johnston, I believe, has been making the case for a number of years, or at least several journalists have been making the case for a number of years, that Trump actually isn't a billionaire. If you add up his debts, they're greater than his assets. I'm not sure that that's the case any longer. I think there's been such a massive increase in the value of real estate over the last 20 years that Trump probably has a net worth that's, you know, well over a billion dollars. Um, but... Who knows? 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. My other question is, as far as January sixth, why yeah. can't the AG just pick up a, a criminal investigation? They could. And they may be doing that right now, and we don't know it. There is a, a grand jury. There's been a federal grand jury in Paddle. There's also a state grand jury uh, in New York State. And I don't recall if it was the state or if it was the city, whether it was Cy Vance or whether it was Letitia James. But, but there's two grand juries that are looking into Trump. And uh, that's major, serious criminal stuff. I have been scratching my head about why Merrick Garland would not release the unredacted Mueller report. He has still, you know, it still has not been released. And why, for that matter, there is a number of other documents that might show Bill Barr in a bad light, and Merrick Garland is refusing to release those too. And people are like, why would he do that? He was, you know, put into place by a Democratic president. I think that we have to remember, and I have no idea if this has anything to do with why, but I think we have to remember that when President Barack Obama appointed Merrick Garland or tried to appoint him to the U.S. Supreme Court, the guy who told him to pick Garland was not some Democrat in the bowels of the White House who had been looking into qualified candidates. It was not a Democratic study group or think tank. It was not some grassroots Democratic group. It was Senator Orrin Hatch, the Republican from Utah, who was replaced by Senator Mitt Romney. And, you know, Orrin Hatch was the guy who said, Put Merrick Garland on the court because he would be a guy who is acceptable to both Democrats and Republicans because we have no idea what his politics are, except that he seems to be kind of a conservative guy. So, you know, who Garland is and where he's at and where he's come from, I'm scratching my head on this one. But maybe, you know, I mean, the, the wheels of justice sometimes grind slowly. So uh, I, I just have to assume that that may have something to do with it, too. Mike, I got to run, but thanks for the call. George in Santee, California. Hey, George, what's up? Yes, Tom. On that, Michael Flynn, wasn't that his conviction? Didn't he plead guilty as part of a plea deal? Yes. And were there any conditions to that plea deal? And if there was, if he violated any of those conditions, could he be recharged with some other crime? I'm sure there were conditions to the plea deal. I don't know what they were. And when he was pardoned, the plea deal went out the window along with the conviction. All right. Well, thank you for that, Tom. Sure enough. Good talking to you, George. I appreciate the call. Rob in Mount Iron, Minnesota. Hey, Rob. Thanks for the time. Again, the only thing I wanted to point out, you have a great narrative as far as the big lie, but the whole thing is, is where did it start? The big liar. And it's going on for so long, you know, I mean, and it's going on and on and on with the continued lying of the whole Republican Party. Yeah. Now, well, what are we going to do about this? You know, I mean, they've planted the seed and it's growing and growing and growing. With me thinking out here, you know, there was a big uh, problem in the past, you know, at the end of the 40s, you know, I mean, no, the middle of the 40s. How did we finally conquer as far as the lying that was going on in the world? It's the destruction of countries. And let's face it, right now, I think we're facing it in our country right now, because how do you cure this? Yeah. Well, how, is that a rhetorical question, Rob, or an actual question? Uh, actual you, and rhetorical at the same time, because <laughs> the whole thing is, is where, you have a, where are we? Where are we right now compared to past? Yeah. Well, I think where we're at right now compared to the past is is probably uh, something close to where we were in the late 1840s, maybe the early 1850s. I don't think we're at civil war time like, you know, these these right wingers running around with the guns think we are. Um, but I do think that this country is experiencing a crisis of democracy and that crisis of democracy is being driven by some of the very wealthiest people in this country, the right wing oligarchs in the 1850s. That was the southern plantation owners. Um, who had become well, richer history, than and anybody in America outside of New York bankers. I'm sorry, what were you going to say? Will, will, will history be kind to us? It depends. I mean, you know, it depends on whether democracy recovers or whether oligarchy wins. The lying wins. Yeah, well, the lying, but, you know, the lying then is a means to an end, and the end is oligarchy. It's ultimately fascism. Oligarchy, you know, rule by the rich for the rich is rarely a stable political system. It typically lasts, you know, less than a single generation. You could argue that the royal families of Europe were oligarchies, you know, classic oligarchies, but they enforce their rule by a police state, by fascism, what we would call fascism today. 
and by merging it, their interests with the business interests in their communities. You know, the East India Company, most of their stock, for example, was owned by the royal family. So that's what they're working toward. That's what these oligarchs in the United States are working towards. And if it has, it has destroyed nations. Oh, absolutely. I've spoken many times about reading Fritz Tyson's book, I Paid Hitler. It was just a shock. You know, here's he, this guy was like one of the wealthiest and most powerful industrialists in all of Germany. He was the, the John D. Rockefeller of his day. And, you know, he funded Adolf Hitler's rise to power and then, you know, survived it and wrote a book about it. But, you know, a rather embarrassed book about it. But, thanks, Tom. Yeah. Thanks a lot for the call, Rob. I got to run. We are going to go one of two ways. We are now in this oligarchy phase where the oligarchs largely control our political processes. They will either win and we will become a fascist state, or they will lose and we will become a democracy again. It's going to go one of two ways. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. And history suggests, I mean, very clearly, that it, both of those things have happened. We've, we've pulled back from oligarchy twice in our history. Charlie in Gold Hill, Oregon. Hey, Charlie, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. I'm interested in Joe Biden's appointment of Joe Manchin's wife, Ethel, to the Appalachian Commission for a salary of $163,000 in March and her approval by the Senate in April. Okay. My assumption when that happened was that that was Biden's way of trying to pull Manchin a little closer to him and you know make nice with him and say okay you know i'll give you this you give me that doesn't seem to have worked yeah i agree with you and also his daughter was the ceo of mylin the company that made the EpiPens and overcharged the federal government 1.27 billion for the price increases on them they went from a manufacturing cost of ten dollars for a two-pack to six hundred dollars for one if you remember that i do remember it well we covered it heavily on this program and yes, that is his daughter. And, uh, you know, that's the thing that baffles me is that, you know, he's rich, his daughter's rich. It's not like they're ever going to have to worry about money. Uh, it would be fascinating to hear Joe Manchin tell his story. Uh, Sean, do you want to reach out to Joe Manchin and ask him if he would like to come on the show? <laughs> you know, I, I'll give him a chance. I'm, I'm not going to, you know, go after him. He's, he's on my side. I, I, I'm not, at least he's on my side of the aisle. I would not, however, shirk from, you know, hard questions. Charlie, thanks a lot for the call. Good to hear from you. Mike in Sherrville, Indiana. Hey, Mike, what's up? Hey, Tom. Yeah, I uh, think that Joe Manchin takes his marching orders from Governor Jim Justice. Why would you think that? Jim, Jim Justice is the governor of, just for people who don't know, he's the governor of West Virginia. He was elected as a Democrat. He became a Republican shortly after Trump's victory, as I recall, and is still they a Trump Republican. Yeah. Big coal magnate, and then he bought the Greenbrier uh, Hotel. And early in Trump's presidency, all the Republicans got together at the Greenbrier for a big uh, this deal. This is Jim I Justice, stay the governor. Them. Yep. And I wonder if, you know, a lot of these plans that we're seeing so far over the last four or five years have been uh, propped up or, you know, the further mar- marching orders for the next couple of years. Yeah. I wonder how many meetings there have been there. It's too bad there wasn't a bartender there with his uh, camera on his phone uh, recording some of that stuff. Yeah, I don't know. Let's let's just assume for a moment that Joe Manchin's intentions uh, with regard to the filibuster, and I'm not sure we can make this assumption with regard to Kirsten Cinema, but that's a whole other separate conversation. But that Joe Manchin's opposition to the filibuster really is rooted in the idea that the Senate is like the most important deliberative body in the world, and we have to be able to deliberate. Um, if that's the case, then you would think he would not be opposed to going with my suggestion, which is the Jimmy Stewart, what I call the Jimmy Stewart filibuster, which is you must have 40 Republicans on the floor at all times, and somebody must be talking at all times. And the minute that stops, you have a vote. And I have heard Joe Manchin say, uh, at least in one radio interview, that he was open to the possibility of, of a conversation about changes to the way the filibuster is done. 
So, you know, it's entirely possible that he would go along with something like that, and then that would then make possible the passage of the kind of legislation that we want. So I'm not ready to write Joe Manchin off altogether. I tweeted rather nasty at him uh, last week that uh, the filibuster was put into place to block discussion in the Senate of abolition of slavery back in the 1830s by John C. Calhoun, which to the best of my knowledge is factual. And you know that tweet where I actually included his Twitter handle, that tweet produced an awful lot of Joe Manchin hating, which I kind of cringed at. But his defense of the filibuster that I was responding to, I thought was disingenuous. But let's assume for a moment that he actually, you know, believes that it's a good thing to have this uh, filibuster. Maybe we can convince him to go, I, you know, here I am being the eternal optimist and hoping for the best, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go, Mike. Yeah, Tom. <laughs> okay, I'll own up to it. Uh, thanks a lot for the call. I appreciate it, Mike. Josh in Miami. Hey, my, hey Josh. Professor Hartman, good to hear you. I was curious, we're talking about the January 6th commission and the vote, and how does the filibuster work? Is it, there were 89 senators, correct? Who voted? Present. And 54 of them voted, voted yes. Yes, 35 so, voted so no. So that's, right. that, that's, that's, 60, that's 60% right there, Tom. So yeah. what's the story there? Well, because the way the rule is written right now, it's 60% of the entire Senate. You know, there's not a provision for a quorum. There's not a provision. I mean, there may be for the Senate as a whole, but in this context, and there's not a provision of a percentage of votes cast. It's a, it's a percentage of senators who are members. And, oh, and frankly, right. I think that should change as well. Josh, thank you for the call. Spot on. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. I think his point, I believe it was Josh, I think his point is really well taken. <laughs> it was 60% of the senators who voted to have the commission. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Tom Arbin here with you. One other thing I wanted to share with you, and then I will pick up your phone calls. Joe Biden met with Senator Shelley Moore Capito, who is... Joe Manchin's colleague. She's the Republican senator from West Virginia. Mitch McConnell put her in charge of negotiating the infrastructure deal with the Democrats. And so she met with Biden. Now, the fact that McConnell put her in charge of this should tell you everything you need to know. But nonetheless, Biden was like, okay, we'll take it at face value. I will meet with her. We will talk with her. We will try to negotiate with her. Now, already Biden has said, well, yeah, we could consider scaling this back. You can go from two and a half trillion dollars down to 1.2 or 1.7 or something like that. We could, we could talk about that. And what did the Republicans say? We're not going to budge. So now he's saying, you know, I was going to raise corporate taxes to 28%, which, by the way, is lower than they were when Trump came into office. It's lower than they've been in in my lifetime, right now. And Biden said, you know, we'll raise up to 28%, this incredibly low 28%. She came in and said, no, that's, uh, that's not going to work for us. You can't raise the corporate tax that much. 
And so President Biden said, well, uh, how about we do, we don't, we, we don't raise the corporate tax. Instead, we just establish a 15% minimum rate. And uh, Senator Capito said, well, let me think about it. In other words, twice now, our Democratic administration has given concessions to the Republicans in this so-called negotiation. This is not a negotiation. This is, this is kabuki theater. This is, this, is, this is a dance that is going on that has you know, no end in terms of Mitch McConnell's view of it. This is simply delaying. I just retweeted a tweet from Robert Reich, the former labor secretary in the Obama administration, a really good guy. He's one of the smartest men in America. He may have been talking about H.R. 1, whichever it was. He said, you've got to do this before the summer break, before the 4th of July, when, when the Senate and the House go basically on a two-month recess. Because during those two months, all this momentum, all this angst, all this political juice that has been cranked up in the, in the Democratic base... And among Americans who simply would like to see America put back together and decent jobs and union jobs and let's make America work again and all this kind of stuff, all that momentum is going to be lost. So that when Congress comes back into session in September, it's going to be what jobs bill? What voting bill? This is a potential disaster. Whitehouse.gov has a form that you can fill out that will get you to go to white, did I say org? It's whitehouse.gov, if I, if I misspoke, uh, I, I don't recall, but it's whitehouse.gov. If you go to whitehouse.gov and hit the contact, there's contact is, in fact, I think it's whitehouse.gov, I'm pretty sure it's whitehouse.gov slash contact. And there is a form that you can fill out and, and, and simply say, Stop negotiating with Republicans and pass the damn legislation. Because the Republicans are not negotiating in good faith. This $2 trillion, what started out as a $2 trillion jobs bill, was money that was going to be spent over an eight-year period. That's like, you know, very little money every year, shall we say. Now, it was going to be front-loaded, but it's still not that much money. And the Republicans want to either, if it's going to get passed, they're going to water it down to the point that it's meaningless. And then it's like people are going to be shrugs, they talk big. But And of course, McConnell is going to do everything he can not to pass it. This is a guy who held up a Supreme Court nomination for a year, for over 400 days, just to spite the Democrats. I, I started to say just to spite America's first black president, but they're doing it to Biden now, too. Stop negotiating with the Klan, right? They have no interest in real negotiation. Move forward. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book club book for today is Talk Radio's America by Brian Rosenwald, subtitled How an Industry Took Over a Political Party That Then Took Over the United States. This is from the introduction. August 1, 1988 marked the beginning of the long road to President Donald Trump. But even political junkies took little notice of the fateful events that unfolded that day as a failed disc jockey and former Kansas City Royals executive named Rush Hudson Limbaugh III made his national radio debut. Only a small audience tuned in. So poorly commemorated was the moment that we don't even know how many stations broadcast day one of Limbaugh's syndicated program. Limbaugh claims the show began on 56 affiliates, while other counts range from 57 and 87. From the beginning, the show was brash, entertaining, controversial, and boundary-pushing. Before Limbaugh, this sort of programming did not exist outside major cities. In 1983, there were just 59 talk radio stations nationwide, and the program on many of these sta those stations consisted of advice shows, staged interviews, and caller-driven discussions of everything from neighborhood schools to abominable snowmen. Most talk radio programming focused on local concerns, and most of the industry's stars, such as Larry King and Sally Jesse Raphael, 
had left-of-center views but rarely shared them. At the time of Limbaugh's national debut, talk radio had negligible political impact. In talk radio hotbeds such as Boston, hosts might influence local and statewide policy debates, especially on visceral issues such as seatbelt laws. But talk radio was not a partisan force, and it had no role in national politics. In fact, the wall-to-wall -wall conservative political talk stations that dominate the AM airwaves today were impossible until 1987, thanks to a regulation called the Fairness Doctrine. That year, however, the Federal Communications Commission eliminated the policy, which required broadcasters of opinionated programming on controversial issues to offer an array of viewpoints. In this more permissive environment, Limbaugh would go on to revolutionize the radio business. In doing so, he helped unintentionally to spawn a major new political player. Within a decade, the broadcast format he inaugurated aired on more than a thousand stations and kept millions company as they commuted, worked, and shouted back at their radios. It took just a few years before conservative talk radio began to influence national politics and public policy. That influence only grew throughout the decades as the business changed. Over the course of the 1990s and early 2000s, the, numbers of, the number of nationally syndicated talk shows rose dramatically, and the content of talk radio programs became increasingly political and conservative. Liberal pundits and some scholars agree on the broad outlines of the story. Conservative station executives conspiring with their Republican allies built a format modeled on Limbaugh's program, and thousands of Limbaugh wannabes cropped up all over the country. Executives, hosts, and politicians turned talk radio into an appendage of the Republican Party, using the platform to get Republicans elected and advance the party's agenda. The success of talk radio led to the development of partisan and ideological cable news networks, and some hosts complemented their radio shows with primetime cable programs. Eventually, this content found a home in the new digital sphere, with equally strident cheerleaders proliferating on blogs and other online publications. This narrative makes sense, especially to liberals. After all, many conservative media executives and their corporate political action committees donate to Republican candidates, and most hosts champion conservative candidates and causes. This narrative is wrong. In reality, the story of talk radio's emergence as a popular conservative format and the impact it had on American politics weaves together two distinct complex tales. Neither has anything to do with the conspiracy to create a media servant of the Republican Party. The first describes how talk radio spread across America in the process saving AM radio from financial ruin. Limbaugh had no intention of affecting elections or legislation and no inkling that he could. Nor did any of his early successors. The executives who gave these hosts a chance also had no interest in political outcomes. Hosts and their bosses were in business. They wanted to captivate listeners and make money and they discovered, essentially by accident, that conservative political talk in the mouth of an entertaining personality achieved this. Conservative hosts had strong opinions, but their primary goal was, and still is, financial gain. And it is because they realized financial gain that more and more stations invested in their style and content while divesting from competing formats. The second story concerns talk radio's transformation, after 1995, into an almost entirely conservative and doctrinaire medium that eventually spawned successors in other media, took over the Republican Party, and reshaped it in hosts' and listeners' image. Limbaugh was a great innovator, but he didn't change American media and politics all at once or on his own. In conservative talk radio's early days, hosts shared stations with liberal talkers and apolitical programs. There was not an immediate sense that conservative radio was the future either. But gradually, its success snowballed thanks to trial and error in the radio business, regulatory changes, political events, happenstance, and most importantly, listener behavior. Hosts also got a boost from marginalized conservative Republican politicians who realized that talk radio would enable them to circumnavigate the mainstream media and deliver their message directly to voters. The book, Talk Radio's America. Ivan in El Paso, Texas. Hey, Ivan, what's on your mind today? Hello, Tom. Thank you for taking my call. And the reason for the call is that I completely agree with you on what you're saying, that this unfair what the Republicans are doing to restrain the voting system. This is completely unfair. And my concern is that Republicans will continue doing all that mess because uh, they listen to a lot of uh, right-wing media. Mm -hmm. And 
and we need more progressive media. We need more because uh, they, they keep on listening to right-wing media. They're going to believe on all their lives. Well, this oh, is the defense, Ivan, that through. these guys are who stormed the Capitol on January 6th chanting, hang Mike Pence and where's Nancy? This is the defense these guys are putting forward is that they watched too much Fox News and they believed it to be true, you know, that the and election the was also, stolen, essentially. And the radio also, because they reach more rural areas besides uh, all oh, yeah. the major markets. Yeah. And like, for example, in El Paso, we don't have a real uh, progressive uh, media. Which it's, is crazy. It's, it's a blue more. town. Yeah, it's a blue town, yes. And to tell you a little sample, I mean, in Mexico, the current president, Andres Manuel López Obrador, are so thankful because they have more media, um, mm -hmm. uh, social media, and they speak a lot better than the traditional TV media. Yeah. The, so and, it, and, it could and, be done and we, right. We need it. And, and, we, and we need it. Yeah, and we're not in here. We need more. Uh, if it's not, if it's not going to be possible on um, open frequency, uh, it can be better on on, uh, on digital media, yeah. on social no, media. I get it. Ivan, thank you for the call. Uh, it, it is a problem, <laughs> shall we say. <laughs> Right-wing media is. Uh, Right-wing media that lies to people, and then those people act on that, believing it to be true. That is a problem. It's an unfortunate, it's a very sad problem in many ways, and it's destroying a lot of lives. I mean, a lot of these people who showed up in D.C., um, you know, a lot of them are having their lives destroyed because they believe that media. So unfortunate. We'll be back tomorrow, same bat time, same bat place. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag your it, and support whatever kind of media you're getting this program from. We'll You've see you tomorrow. you listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Thank you.